0: Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the government moves toward relaxing restrictions on fully vaccinated travelers. What is currently being considered as the first step in this approach is to allow fully vaccinated individuals currently permitted to enter Canada to do so without the requirement to stay in government-authorized accommodations. A settlement is reached with some residential school survivors. Today is a testament. To the persistence, dedication, and resilience of all survivors, their descendants, and their communities. The signing of this agreement marks an important milestone for thousands of day scholars who suffered harm while attending our Indian Residential School. And Justin Trudeau prepares to meet counterparts from
1: around the world at this weekend's G7 summit, much of the focus will be on a post pandemic recovery and on preventing or at least preparing better for future pandemics. It's Thursday, June the 10th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe.
0: Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us today. Morning, Mark. Let's talk about people who are coming into Canada and uh, the, the restrictions that they face now and, and what they might face in the future. The government is saying uh, it will relax the restrictions on people who have been fully vaccinated, who have had two doses. Uh, do you think, and, and that of course applies to Canadians returning home and it applies to people visiting the country. Uh, what do you think about that, about that move?
2: Yeah, it seems to be. It'll be pretty cautious. I think it will be a gradual easing rather than a, than a, um, you know, sudden opening of of, of the borders. Uh, it looks like uh, if you're vaccinated, some of the quarantine rules will, will, uh, will fall away. I'm not sure how much this has got to do with the fact that uh, the prime minister is going to Europe and has to come back and probably has to stay in a quarantine hotel himself. But uh, I'm being a bit facetious there. Yeah. I do think the visit to. Uh, to Europe will see some significant advances in uh, talks about opening up. I mean, I think that um, President Joe Biden and uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson have already indicated that part of the conversation is going to be about uh, getting transatlantic travel back up and running again. And obviously, Canada will be will be part of that discussion. So I just I think that uh, as we see the the vaccination rates for Canadians is now. Through 70% for one dose, um, you know the Americans are, are very far advanced in uh, having two doses. We, we've put all of our eggs in the in the in the first dose basket, um, but the Americans are somewhere around 40-50% in the second doses. So you know it's gradually happening, but I don't know if it's uh, if we're going to see the U.S. border open up on on uh, June 21st when. Uh, when the current restrictions end. I mean, I've talked to people in in, in PMO who've said that may be too early, but it's happening. And, um, you know, I think that uh, people can start to plan for for late summer trips abroad.
0: Yeah, and and does it feel to you as, you know, I know a lot of people are sort of looking for clues here. We've, you know, there is a... Uh, We'll talk in a moment about the substance of the G7 summit, but the fact that it's happening and the leaders are actually traveling and and meeting in person as opposed to, uh on online um the fact that we're talking about easing some restrictions more and more Canadians are getting that second dose and this week next week the week after that um it and the rates are coming down in places like Ontario where there had been a spike uh, as recently as a month ago um do you do you feel like people are starting to see this as an emergence from the pandemic
2: yeah, very much so. I mean, I think we're starting to see restrictions lifted in provinces. Uh, I think Ontario lifts tomorrow. Quebec, where I am, is already, uh, you're starting to see people sitting on patios. You know, that sense of a gradual process. I mean, I don't think that, that uh, anybody is, is calling out for mass gatherings at uh, you know concerts or wherever immediately. But there is a sense that normality is slowly coming back. And, um, you know, we're now starting to turn our thoughts. You know, we, we're going to talk about the G7, but the, the G7 is now talking about the rest of the world. Um, you know, the, the the implicit understanding is that things are returning to normal in uh, in the G7 countries.
0: Yeah. All right, let's talk about the G7 meeting. And uh, this is uh, not just the first gathering of international leaders since the pandemic began in person, but it's also the first post-Donald Trump um, uh, uh, G7 meeting. Um, so what do you expect from this? And what do you think Canada's agenda is going into this?
2: Well, certainly we hope the tone is better than the the, uh, the Trump visit to Charlevoix, people remember back in 2018, I think it was, yeah. um, where he, on the plane he tweeted out that he, he was withdrawing the US's name from the communique that had just been issued because he didn't like what Trudeau had said in the uh, press conference. <laughs> I don't think we're going to see histrionics like that again. Biden has already said that he's uh, he wants the US to donate 500 million doses of vaccine to, to the uh, developing world. You know, Canada's o- uh, ordered somewhere around 122 million doses guarantee for delivery this year. We only really need 75, 76 million doses. So we've got about 50 million to uh, once Canada's fully vaccinated that we can we can donate. And I think there is a recognition that, that uh, the, the world is not safe from this virus until everybody's vaccinated. So it's in our own interest to... To uh, use the, the COVAX facility, the global initiative established to provide shots to low and middle-income countries. So I think we'll start. To, we'll see that conversation happen. I know that uh, that Trudeau. This is going to be Trudeau's first face-to-face meeting with Biden since he became president. Although obviously they, they know each other well from uh, from Biden's time as vice president. In fact, the, the uh, invitation that Trudeau issued in 2016. To Biden, when he was the outgoing vice president, to come to, to Canada for a state visit, it now looks very pres- prescient yeah. because uh, they obviously got very uh, got to know each other very well at that time. Um, but this is the first meeting in face face to face since that uh, since Biden was elected. These meetings are invaluable. I mean, I think that uh, that face to face meetings between leaders are, are always underestimated by maybe by the media, certainly by the public. Because we don't see what's happening, but but they they allow people to talk um, about issues that you can't really talk about uh, uh, online. Um, one of which will be when Trudeau draws him aside, he's going to ask him again about Kovrig and Sparbo, or the two Michaels in China. You know, I wrote last week, that I'm I'm getting a bit um, pessimistic about the U.S.'s uh, ability to intervene in this. I mean, I do think that Canada has to to look after its own and can't rely on the U.S. solely to, uh, you know, the U.S. has got its own interests and its own agenda with China. I don't think that the Americans are going to put everything on the table for two Canadians. But, but still, there's a role for the U.S. They, they may decide that they want to come, engage in some kind of deferred prosecution agreement with, with uh, Madame Meng and with the extradition case, which is is the catalyst for this whole whole affair. Uh, we'll see. But, uh, but but there are going to be plenty of issues to talk about. Trying to get the world back to normal, I think, is the main agenda.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about a, a settlement that has been reached in a class action lawsuit against the federal government involving uh, hundreds of First Nations people who were not included in the original residential school compensation. They were known as day scholars. Uh, they returned to their homes at night. Um, and this isn't a large number of people, uh, but it, it is sort of the first development since the disc- like the first development like this, since the discovery of the bodies of 215 children at the residential school in British Columbia. So obviously it's an important milestone, be- and there is still a lot more work to be done uh, in, in reconciliation.
2: Yeah, this is a, um, a hangover from the, the, the settlement that, was, that goes way back to, I think, two thousand and five, two thousand and six. It was made. I mean, it was made by Paul Martin, the agreement that there was going to be a settlement and that uh, there would be a common experience fund that paid out to uh, to everybody who had been a residential school survivor, uh, but it excluded uh, people who had who were day scholars who went. Went to the to the schools and came came home again at night. So that has now been settled. Um, a, a class action suit that has been in the works for a long, long time. Ten thousand dollar payments to each of those people. I think it's it's obviously coincidental to the uh, to the discovery of the of, of the remains of the two hundred fifteen children in, in British Columbia. But it's obviously again sparks um, trauma and the people who who were affected. And highlights the, what the Christmas Reconciliation Commission called a, a cultural genocide.
0: All right. We'll see uh, what the next few days bring us, uh, including at the G7 Summit in uh, in England. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post.
2: We know that what happened in London is something that is rooted in a deep-seated Islamophobia that that individual harbored, and that doesn't come out of
0: nowhere. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Montreal Gazette, Martine St. Victor argues that as a society, we have tolerated, at least indirectly, what led to the attack in London. She writes, The tragic London event is who we are, not because it's something we would have done, but rather because, as a society, we have tolerated what led up to it. We perhaps didn't fight hard enough against discrimination, and surely we've shrugged at blatant Islamophobia, racism, and misogyny one too many times. And for too long, we've tricked ourselves into believing this type of violence only happened elsewhere. In the National Post, Rupa Subramania argues Canada is one of the most tolerant places on Earth. Subramania writes, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh went so far as to claim that Canada is a place of racism, and that Muslims are not safe in this country. While there is no question that hate crimes have been on the rise recently, by any metric, Canada is one of the most tolerant countries on the planet. Singh does the cause of fighting racism no favors by taking an extreme and exaggerated position. Are there racists in Canada? Sure. Is Canada a racist country? Absolutely not. At National News Watch, Glenn Pearson argues... It is time for our country to consider the vulnerability of its populations. Pearson writes, There is work to be done in this country, and it must be done not just in our legislatures, but in our neighborhoods, institutions, and our homes. London, Ontario is in the process of reflecting on whether its citizens and their government are ready for such an immense responsibility. Every community in this country must ready itself for similar exploits. It is a social pandemic that will outlast COVID-19. And the fate and reputation of this country hang in the balance. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. Prime Minister Trudeau leaves today to attend the G7 summit in Cornwall, England. CPAC's Martin Stringer has a look. And what to watch for
1: and what's on the agenda. Mark, much attention has been paid to the fact that Justin Trudeau will be attending his first major summit in person since the pandemic hit, and the fact that he will be quarantining in a hotel in Canada on his return, but just as noteworthy is how different the world is at this summit since the last time the G7 leaders met in person. Much of the focus will be on a post-pandemic recovery and on preventing or at least preparing better for future pandemics but global political dynamics have changed so much as well. The great disruptor, Donald Trump, is gone. The G7 leaders can now try to rebuild international multilateral institutions like the WTO, which he largely ignored or openly sabotaged. And the new president, Joe Biden, is supercharging the rhetoric and reviving the seriousness of the global effort to deal with climate change. And on climate change, there'll be a lot of talk about the next round of UN climate change discussions, the Glasgow Conference, in November. And G7's leaders will discuss how to deal with the authoritarians leading the world's other two superpowers, President Xi of China and Putin of Russia, who are more ensconced, emboldened, and aggressive than ever. Thanks, Martin. Also today, Deputy
0: Prime Minister Christia Freeland will meet virtually with the International Executive Board of the Service Employees International Union. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will hold a news conference in Ottawa and will also take part in the Windsor-Tecumseh federal NDP nomination meeting. Public Safety Minister Bill Blair and Diversity Minister Bardish Chagger will hold a news conference to speak about upcoming legislation. Government House Leader Pablo Rodriguez will hold a news conference to discuss the government's legislative priorities in the final days of the spring sitting. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will announce funding to support the food industry in Quebec. Small Business Minister Mary Ng will give a keynote speech to business leaders from Canada's agri-food and agritech sectors. Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will attend an announcement in Scarborough, Ontario. And Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley will make an announcement about COVID-19 response for public infrastructure in eastern Prince Edward Island. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, June the 10th. Tune into Primetime Politics every evening on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.